welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Hello everyone, I'm Laura, your host of After the Bell. This is the second last conversation of 2020 and it is with a couple who are both teachers, Jess and Glenn. I had the opportunity of working with Glenn at a school for a while, although we didn't work closely together because we are not in any of the same faculties. And Jess actually I found through Instagram and it's just such a small world when we started to get to chatting, I realized that I'd worked with Glenn, her husband, and we've also worked with a lot of teachers mutually as well. So it's, it is a small world and it's lovely to connect. And I really think this is an important conversation because they talk about what happens when burnout occurs, not when we feel like we're burning out or worried about burning out, but actually being at a school where you feel as though you can't find that love for the profession anymore and what you do about that. And the kind of effects that it has on you long term as well. These guys are incredible teachers, operators, curriculum developers. They are really focused on critical skills in their educational development. They have a TPT store. They focus a lot on like big questions that encourage real thought. So questions that you couldn't just find an answer to on the internet. Before I hand it over to that conversation, I am going to give myself a little bit of a break. So I do have a lot of conversations booked, a couple recorded that I'm still editing. And I thought I'll just keep on keeping on through these busy weeks in December. And it's my daughter's fourth birthday today on the 21st of December when this is released. And I just can't keep going at the speed and the rate that I was and I'm going to give myself the permission to take a couple of weeks off the podcast and to those people who I've recorded with I am still editing it will be out I just need to be with my family and have a bit of a rest and if you are somebody who is powering through right now thinking that you can't do the same I encourage you to join me if it is indeed a perceived pressure like mine rather than a legitimate pressure. So if you aren't following me on Instagram at Educating Laura, jump on there, follow me on there, and I will let you know when exactly I'll be back. But I'm thinking around the 11th of Jan with the first conversation of 2020, and I will be putting up the second half of my 2020 wrap up. But I just need to not have this pressure on myself right now and to enjoy all that is this crazy December, January holiday season. Again, thank you for being here. If you enjoy this conversation, please share it with anybody that you think would get something out of it. Post it on social media, subscribe to the show, rate the show, comment. All of those things really help. And obviously I am doing this for my growth, my understanding, my involvement in teaching and education, but It isn't for monetary gain. So those kinds of things really do go a long way. Here's Jess and Glenn. Hello, Jess and Glenn. How are you going? Good, thanks. Good, thanks. I thought that we would start by discussing your educational experience as a student. Who would like to go first? Jess would. All right, I'll go. I'll go. So basically in my education, I went through the Catholic system. The main reason for that being that I started kindergarten a year early and my kindergarten teacher wasn't fond of me and called the local primary school and told me not to accept me and the Catholic school did accept me. Wow. Uh, That was my experience of going into the Catholic system. So that was in northeast Victoria. That was, you know, 13 years going through that. Generally pretty good. I never had any particularly negative experiences of school, not necessarily any inspiring ones either, but I felt I got a a pretty well-rounded education over the 13 years. Yeah. What about you, Glenn? So I was public school all the way. 
and I think that was a really good thing. It's something that I'm actually really proud of that I was educated in the public system. On the whole, I would say my teachers were were pretty good. Obviously, there were some that were a bit dull and there were some that were really inspiring. But I feel I came out of it knowing a lot about the world and having mixed with lots of different groups of people and lots of different, um, you know, multicultural groups within society. And I thought that that's made me probably more rounded person than if I'd gone to a kind of single-sex wealthy school. So Yeah. I'm wondering your experience, Jess. I went to an all-girls Catholic school. Mm. Did you feel as though you had a great sense of the world and greater understanding of the world or was it more sort of insular, did you find? So my school was co-ed, but Mm -hmm. there was a degree of education about the wider world, but I I would say it was relatively limited. Mm -hmm. I think moving to Melbourne as a 17-year-old to go to university, I discovered there was a whole lot more to the world that I'd never had a great deal of, like, knowledge about. I think most of my knowledge you know in that area came from my parents more than my school did either of you have a particular teacher that made a big impact on you yeah probably my favorite primary school teacher was mr van pelt who i had in grade six and he just seemed to know everything and he was just a really enthusiastic fun happy teacher who just encouraged me and our class a lot and just made probably my experience at the end of primary school really positive whereas the the previous year had had been a bit difficult at at different points and he really inspired me in lots of ways and probably in a sense I think with some especially male primary school teachers with with male students you you almost kind of worship them to an extent and I probably if he had have told me that the earth was flat I probably would have agreed with him (laughs) (laughs) it's just a really guy and I in year seven I had two really good teachers one was a science teacher who I probably had a bit of a crush on to be honest so I won't won't name her (laughs) she was just really lovely things like um I was doing music and I was playing the trombone and and she would come and listen with another one of the teachers um after school and like I lost three sets of keys in six months and she and the, the other teacher who I've known for a long time as well, outside of school, always just kind of looked after me um, and supported me. And that was really special. And I'm still like the, probably the, the year level coordinator, Jill Pollock, I'm still friends with and still see now. Um, and obviously that was 1997. She was on school council with dad as well, but just she's made a huge impact on my life. Probably really, even though she was yeah. a French teacher, I didn't love French, but she actually encouraged my life history. So she was really inspirational too. But I think the other, the science teacher, I remember I did this task. We had to come up with a way of surviving on a desert island. And I'd, I'd made this machine basically to distill water and slashed my thumb open with a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> and oh. on the assignment, she wrote, oh, you know, if I was going to be stuck on a desert island, I'd want to be stuck there with you. Oh, that crap! Um, that crap is screaming. Just stuck in my head for like the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like I know that it was, yes. it was obviously meant in the way yes. that it was. I wouldn't have died, but mm. you know, that was fine. And <laughs> probably the other one was Ian Slater, who was my business management teacher, and he probably is the person that made me become a teacher. He was just a super intelligent really funny kind of a bit random at times but it was just a great teacher who just really made me think a lot with the activities that he did even in year nine and ten when i think people switch off there's a few tasks that he did that just made me think a lot about especially economics and that's probably where my love of of economics came from and then as, as a teacher he just by chance became my supervisor twice okay and that you know obviously impacted on my teaching a lot after that as well. What about you, Jess? It's probably only two teachers that stand out to me. I think the first one's my prep teacher back in 1990. And she was just one of the most lovely, caring people, you know, I've ever come across in school. And I was a very noisy, Mm -hmm. energetic child. And she she basically had me sorted from day one. And I adored her and anything she said I would do. I just remember always thinking she was the most wonderful person in the world and that mm. she truly cared about me and everyone. I just remember adoring her so much and she was just such a lovely person. I think one of the other teachers I had was my 
year 11 maths teacher, Mr. Grogan, mm. who's just a legend. I attempted to do maths methods without a graphics calculator. <laughs> and like, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but he sort of helped me navigate through that as best as best he could, which I imagine was very, very challenging from him. But he was just one of those people that you can, you know, you could work through methods with, you could have a chat with. I've sort of bumped into him since he's a, a good family friend of one of my friends from school. And he's just one of those people that made you comfortable and happy to be at school. Mm. You know, you always enjoyed being in the class with him. Yeah. Do you think that those experiences have shaped who you've wanted to be as a teacher? I'm hearing from both of you, it's the relationship and the opportunity to think critically or to think outside of yourself or to expand your knowledge. Do you think that those things have impacted how you've now created a classroom? Yeah. I think relationships definitely for me. That's been the strongest thing. Like I, I had lots, I had good teachers, but I don't remember ever being hugely pushed to think critically, if I'm honest. Hmm. But I think the teachers I remember are the ones that made me feel comfortable and made me feel welcome. And I think that's something I definitely try to do at the moment. What about you, Glenn? Um, yeah, definitely. The, the assignment that I did in year nine, it was probably really a game. And to most people, it's probably the most dull thing they could ever do. But he basically created this simulation of the economy and you had to try and, with a spreadsheet, come up with rules to reduce inflation and create economic growth and balance the budget. I just had to tell everyone that you're smiling as you're talking about this. (laughs) (laughs) I remember this spreadsheet and I just loved it, this challenge of trying to do this in a group against competitive against other kids at the same time. Yeah. It made obviously made this big formula that sat behind it all and it was just I loved the challenge of it yeah. to the point where I, at uni I created probably a, realistically a copy of it and then mm. I know that other teachers from my uni group ended up using that at their schools but I lost it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah what are your thoughts about the way we're trained as teachers what are the pros and cons I personally think it's my experience of it was far too theory-based. I can obviously see that there's a place for educational theory and educating new teachers in that, but I feel I left university without a great deal of practical skills. Mm. I feel my placements, 100%, I learned so, so much from my supervising teachers and obviously this, you know, other student teachers I was working with. But my my belief is there's this huge focus on theory and best practice, but not a focus on some of those little intricacies of teaching, which are vital to being successful as a teacher, you know, like like building relationships, even like working with parents and collaborating with parents and staff and those, those little things that change so much of your day and change how successful you're going to be. Yeah. I felt my university education were, were missed. Yeah. The pro would be when I did my secondary methods, those units, that they were they were always led by practicing teachers. Mm. I think my psych method, they were both teaching at Baldwin High and my SOS method, I can't remember, but I remember they were both they were in the classroom. Those units were the most valuable because the, the teachers tell me what they'd done yesterday. And I learned, you know, yeah. from them. What about you, Glenn? Yeah, pretty similar. The theory the thing I found was we covered all this theory because I did a degree and then we covered the theory again in fourth year when all the dip heads started and we did the same stuff. Yeah. So that, that nearly killed me. My subject specific, I had the same tutor and lecturer for both business and economics and she was amazing. She was a very brutal woman, but she was very, very good at what she was doing. But I think the area we weren't prepared for is, is dealing with classroom behaviour and kids who are struggling with all aspects of their lives and thinking about like there's a, a young teacher that I know who's just starting out in the last month or so and wow. the challenges that he has encountered at his new school where he's, you know, he's in his early 20s and he's struggling to control the male students and he's asking me for advice about what to do. And I feel like the advice I give is very constructive, but a lot of it is things that I've seen other teachers do and I've mentioned yeah. my own teaching. 
And some of those things are very difficult to teach. They're, they're nonverbal cues and posture and confidence and, you know, I guess things like, you know, you walk into a classroom and you're, you're the boss and you give off that air of authority and you don't give the kids a chance to take that. Whereas I think, you know, a lot of teachers go in and, and they either go too hard or too soft and then they're caught in that middle ground. Yeah. But I think that would have to be something that's natural for you too. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes maybe maybe the, the authority comes from the development of relationships and kids seeing you work really hard and understanding that that's the expectation that you have. It could be, as you say, the posture, you come in and there's an air about you that you just emanate. Mm. You know, I think that that's where it is hard because you can't teach that stuff okay. theoretically. You actually just have to learn it and you have to practice it and you have to embody it yourself. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think the other thing that I found, especially at, our, at the school we worked together at, was I learned so much from PE teachers. Mm-hmm who are very different people to me, very much alpha males, but it it wasn't through shouting or being aggressive that they get what they want. It's it's all the nonverbal, and I assume you know who I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah, pointing and they just go. Yeah, pointing and it's just a a look, but it's it's not a contemptuous, arrogant look. It's it's kind of almost cheeky. It's done in a way that's respectful but kind of funny. Yeah, but at the same time, I think about myself. If I tried to pull that off, I'd look ridiculous mm. at five foot four. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you just have to work with what you've got. And yeah. sometimes it's okay if you don't do it the way everybody else does it. Yeah. But it is really impressive to see people do things that you know you couldn't do. You're like, whoa, that's amazing. Yeah, that would only work for me with kids that I already have a really good relationship with. But for them, yes, not anyone. But I, yes, both you and I found that humour is is the number one tool. Well, I will say that. That's what kids used to say to me about you because when you uh, present yourself, you're very sort of serious and the kids are like, oh, he's got a wicked sense of humour and that's what would come through. And I think it's almost like they felt like they were gifted something to get Mm. that from you because you didn't give it away so easily. That's how it seemed to me as a colleague that they felt like they were in your little group Mm. that they got to get something that you didn't give away to everybody. I'm the best part of every class for me is when someone says, I can't tell when you're being serious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I still <laughs> and that's happened at this, my new school. And it's happened yep. with all the growing kids. At some point, almost all of them come up to me. I just can't tell when you're being serious. I just look yep. at them and say, good. <laughs> <laughs> As he says with a completely straight face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's the best. <laughs> so you guys both met as grads. Can you tell me about the first school that you worked at together? Jess, would you like to start? Yeah. So the school we worked at when we started was going into its fourth year, so a year 10 cohort. So mm. it was very much a new school. It had very much a new, unique approach. So the school used a lot of team teaching and integrated learning. So year seven to nine humanities science english and mathematics were all taught as one subject i'm in a team teaching environment and the basic idea was that you taught under it like under Mm -hmm. the umbrella of a theme and then integrated all that subject into that uh the school was in a pretty low socioeconomic area it had students numerous students with challenging behaviors so in a lot of instances literacy and numeracy was very very low A lot of students weren't getting adequate support at home and a lot of families were generally not hugely supportive Mm -hmm. of the education system. I think the other thing that really stood out with that school, being a new school, was the proportion of new staff. So I would wager when I started that 75, 80% of the staff were under 30. I would almost be 25. Under 25? Yeah. Yeah. It was very young very very young like I remember thinking someone was an older teacher but thinking about it now they were probably only about 30 or early 30s so it was great in that there were lots of graduates learning together who had lots and lots and lots of ideas you know trying stuff out a lot of energy but what my experience of that school was quickly that the you know, in theory, a lot of these ideas and the practices the school were implementing were really unique and had the potential to be really effective. But a lot of the students we had 
didn't have mm. the basics to yep. engage in it properly. And 90% of my time, I would wake up, 80, 90% of my time was classroom management um, and very, very little actual yeah. teaching because it yeah. was impossible. Um, that's my overview. I don't know if you want to add anything. I remember then. taking 40 minutes to mark the roll one day. Really? So what was going on? What was going on that you couldn't mark the roll? Oh, just be out of their seats, running around, just talking, just holding you in contempt. Mm. Just because we had so many kids in the classroom. Yeah. And I would say in each each class of, say, I don't know, 50 kids, imagine, you know, your bottom worst 5% of students, probably 30% of the class was like that Yeah. in every class. So there's, there's just no... There was no respect. There was no desire to engage, and it was all just about how much time can we waste. Yeah, and just it just burnt you out so quickly. Yeah, and especially I imagine too that you feel as though in one way you've got this opportunity to create education and curriculum in such an inspiring new way, and the fact that you can't even deliver it would just make yeah. you feel like, what's the point? Yeah, yeah. I think that was where that school was so incredibly challenging because so often you had people working incredibly hard to take the needs of the students into account. And as Glenn said, you know, you had a very large proportion of each class either being well below literacy and numeracy standards or having challenging behaviours or, you know, well-being issues. And you were trying incredibly hard to take that into account to support those students. But more often than not, what you did never eventuated or was was relatively ineffective i think the other and it it was sort of coming across as quite harsh the school there were people within the school trying really hard to make things work yeah but i think overall in terms of student support and student discipline across the school it was inconsistent so what one student would get punished for another student wouldn't what one student would get suspended for another wouldn't yeah and that became incredibly challenging where you had situations where you were attempting to work with a student but another teacher had a completely different approach and I think we were encouraged to bring in a lot of new ideas but there needed to be a little bit of consistency and in some aspects a little bit more of that traditional approach I think because it was not working and and a lot of the time when younger staff myself included I fronted a leading teacher meeting admittedly uninvited but I I felt passionate I said you know your staff are struggling there's a real well-being yeah. in your staff and I was told to submit an agenda item next time please right um yeah and I I, yeah. I, I really disclose I sort of just I just felt really strongly I went they said to come, I'm going to go. Um, but yeah. I felt that it was sort of, there was a little bit of a culture of, well, you need to tough it out a little bit yeah. okay. from, from people in leadership. Yeah, and yeah. I also think there was just a real inability to accept that the ideas that the school had been based on weren't working and they needed to accept that and change and it didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering, was it because it was like a marketing element like we're doing it so differently come to our school was it a funding if we do this we get more funding what was the what was the basis behind such a different approach I think it was the belief of the, of the principal from the context that he'd yeah. been working in he'd been working in in a school with disengaged kids but it had been a very small school where they okay. had been able to make these super strong relationships and I think engage the kids that way. But when you rolled it out to a school that was expanding at the speed that school was, both in terms of staff and students, you can't build those level of relationships with 1,200 kids, Yeah, right. I don't think. And then just the logistics of having so many people in such big spaces with so many inexperienced mm. staff, I just don't believe it could work with the staff that we had. And there were some amazing yeah. people, but within two years of us starting they you know the vast majority of the people that had started the same way I had which I'll probably talk about in one of the next questions um we'd all yep. left because we were just burnt or exhausted yeah the only time in my life I've ever had constant headaches where I've been getting home at five o'clock and going to sleep oh yeah because wow I was so exhausted yeah I'm wondering you were saying that you did rounds there is that right before accepting the job yep so did you know it was like this? Was it kind of presented a different way at rounds or did you know what you, get, what you were getting yourself in for? I had, I had a really effective mentor 
on rounds. And she was really successful at, at getting the kids to work. And when I had her class, I think her, her aura kind of affected how they performed. But I also think the school was smaller then, so the relationships were better. And yeah, I also think that was probably not quite a representative class. But I was there for one day a week for an entire year as a student teacher. So I volunteered and, and worked one day a week for that whole year. And there's a whole bunch of us who did the same thing through Monash. And we all ended up working there, but we all left within two years, as far as I can remember. Yeah. And everyone who was so passionate and committed and actually really liked the school, by, by the end of that two years, we were all well and truly exhausted and burnt out. So how do you then reset your attitude and want to excel in your profession after having a job that is so demoralising? It it took a long time. Mm. Thinking about it in retrospect, I mean, here we are, what, 12 years later. It probably took, I think it was about five years before I really realised how much it had actually affected me. Yeah. And I I realised it in that I didn't want to do anything innovative and I was very, very conflict-averse. So often I wouldn't ring parents, even though they should have been called because I was worried. I think for myself, and I think Glenn too, it was a really conscious decision that was made. And then it actually took, I guess, I don't know how to put it, but like really actively changing our own thought processes and saying, you know, this profession is worthwhile, making an effort is worthwhile and doing it consistently and engaging the students in what you're doing is a worthwhile process. And by doing that and by starting to really engage in what you're doing and bringing that creativity back and making those innovative lessons and trying new things and seeing a positive response, sort of like a positive feedback loop almost. But it was yeah, very much it had to be a decision. I will not be a negative teacher. And yeah. for me it was very much about aligning myself and spending time with teachers with a similar mentality I think we all know every school has negative teachers. Probably every profession, yep. to be fair, has negative teachers, but sort of yep. actively stepping away yep, from those people in a professional context and spending time with people who were doing great things and who were positive. But it took a long time. It took a really long time, mm-hmm. a surprisingly long time, unfortunately. But I think I think we're both in a better spot now. So when you're at, at a new school, you just tried to keep it really basic. You felt there wasn't a lot of point being too creative because it probably wouldn't get you anywhere and you just sort of went through the motions for a little while? A little bit. The other thing, I guess, in my experience was I went from that school to an all-girls grammar school in the United Kingdom where I had no classroom management issues at all. But Mm. I also taught mainly senior school and um, VCE, the equivalent of VCE, and it was a relatively regimented approach at that school. The biggest thing I found was I had to completely change how I taught because my lessons were finishing 15 minutes in because I wasn't used to students doing <laughs> yeah. work. And they yeah. looked at me on my way and went, well, what do we do now? I, was, I don't have anything else because I honestly <laughs> yeah. had changed. We had gotten to like that 40 point. minutes to mark the roll. <laughs> yeah, and these girls were just staring at me like, well, what is wrong with this person? I'm like, tomorrow. We'll we'll, um, do some revision and tomorrow. But, yeah, for me, I think because I didn't have classroom management and because I was tired, I left the Australian school year and went straight into midway through the British school year, so I only had about two weeks off. I just kept it so basic, so very, very simple because it was easy and they were doing the work and I just felt it was was almost like a safe space. I was like, I can just do this and they'll do it and it'll be fine, you know. That was my yeah. experience today. What about you, Glenn, in terms of shifting that um, I would ideology? Say when I started at, at the school we worked at, or they used to work at, <laughs> I, I was focused firstly on, on staying there <laughs> because I was a contract. And then I was focused okay. on taking year 12 and teaching that effectively. And the, the subject I was teaching, obviously, is accounting. So it's a a very structured approach, which I realized as I was starting to actually teach that subject that I didn't actually know how to teach anything. All I knew how to do was survive. 
So it, oh, it wow. took me a while to realise that. And then obviously... Guess it's not in. Yeah, Judy <laughs> Press taught me how to actually teach. Um, right. And then I kind of got to the point with Year 12 where I was getting really good results. And then I was like, well, now what? And then I started to think about what I was doing. And I was like, I'm actually now really bored and mm. I need to do either, I need to change my thought processes around what I'm doing or quit teaching and do something else because it's not making me happy anymore. Like, like it's kind of, for me, I have challenges and I, I achieve them or tick them off. And then I'm like, what's the next thing? And it was at that point I went, well, you probably should be a leading teacher. And then I tried to do that and realised that I really didn't actually have any justification for being a leading teacher because I hadn't done anything. Right. Um, That's funny. And, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember being in an interview and, and talking about all this stuff that I'd been doing, but it was, wasn't at work. It was at a rowing club. Right. I was being the president of a rowing club. And they're like, you know, they were great examples, but they don't have anything to do with teaching. And I was like, yeah, fair point. <laughs> Um, yeah. Thank you for the constructive criticism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was helpful. Yeah. I didn't agree initially, but you know, I saw a lot of light of day at the end. Yeah. But and then I was like, well, what justification do I have for being a leading teacher? You don't do anything interesting or innovative. You're just an effective Year Twelve teacher. Right. And you know, I was kind of like, well, do I want to be a Year Level coordinator? No, not at all. And then I was like, well, the thing that interests me is curriculum and and pedagogy-based mm. stuff. And then I was like, probably should do something in that area really if that's what you're interested in. Yeah. I want the inner monologue that, you have with yourself, Glenn. <laughs> yeah. I like I, it. Just as but that's, that's how I think. <laughs> yeah. Everything's very logical, I suppose. Yeah. It's like, um, what if I do this? I'll do this. But then I, Good. if I'm going to do that, I have to be positive. Mm. And I'm, I was so cynical and negative of any new ideas that – I was like, well, there's, there's just no justification for you even trying to do one of these roles at the moment. You're not the right person to do that. Yeah. And though I never ended up doing that role, mm. changing my mindset made me a much better teacher. And then I started to experiment and, and do lots of really good things because I was exposing myself to new ideas and new ways of thinking. And so what happened? You had a middle school curriculum that you kind of overhauled, didn't you? How did that look? Yeah, so I, I became the head of faculty and I was looking at what I was teaching. And I was like, this is this is useful information, but you could do this far more innovatively and more interestingly. But I, I think in the end it was I made a new subject called Politics and Power, which was where I finally managed to get economics into the school um, and politics, which I adore. And then I just started making these assignments, which realistically were inspired by Ian Slater, who I talked about before. Yeah. And I made this assignment, which students had to come up with policies, but then I created a, a spreadsheet effectively that then modeled the impact of all these different policies. So there's probably 50 or 60 policies kids could make up. So they're coming up with these fairly extreme political parties and ideas and then this model could implement what happened then they had to present it back to the class and then the rest of the class could then criticize i'm going to say politely more rip shreds into their ideas and whoever won then i would make up the story of what happened and that was that task and that subject was the beginning of of changing my whole teaching approach yeah so i realized these big chunky messy tasks which I was making, even though they were probably hard for, I think a lot of people, if they inherited that task, they'd find it very challenging to teach. Yeah. It just, the kids really loved it. And it just led to these really awesome discussions and arguments and challenging each other. And it was just really fun. Yeah. I've got a year seven history class at the moment, which is hilarious because I don't teach history. And the way that I've gone into it, I'm supposed to be doing ancient China and I actually had a conversation with the kids about what they know about China and what they'd like to know about China. And ultimately a lot of the things were very, very stereotypical and you're just ignorant, right? Like they just don't know any better. This is how they they see the world. It's how it's been presented to them. And so I gave them the opportunity to educate themselves on things that they have gaps in their knowledge about and to present it into the class the way that they would like to. And it's exactly as you say, 
it's a very messy class. I've got kids everywhere. I've got lots of noise. Some kids are on their computer. Some kids are creating posters. Everyone's everywhere. And there is that part of me that thinks, oh, this looks really bad from the outside mm. because everyone is just all over the place. But when I speak to the kids, the conversations and the feedback I get is mm. so much more rich than any other class mm. that I'd be teaching if I'm just disseminating information. Mm. So it is it is interesting, isn't it, to shift that perspective for yourself? Yeah, we all have, a, I guess, a perception of what a good class looks like. And mm. I think quite often a good class from the outside doesn't necessarily look good. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, Jess. Mine looks like your history class, I should say. Oh, good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you too because you've also said to me that it took five years before you actually taught the subjects that you're qualified to teach. And I think people yeah. don't realise that that's often the case, that when you get thrown into a school, they're like, oh, you, you're kind of, you know, humanities adjacent. Can you just take that? So what was that like for you? Full on. So I'm humanities psychology and by the time I got back from the UK so that was my first four years of teaching I taught humanities English psychology sociology French health work I was head of drama I don't know why no, I don't speak <laughs> oh we should laugh this is real this happens all the time my friend told me the other day she taught French for a year and she I think the last time she did French, she was in year nine. Yeah, I've never done it. So I did that for three months. I was mm. head of GCSE drama for a year. I have no drama qualification. The girls didn't have a hugely serious approach to drama, which was very lucky for me. They were yeah. pretty children. <laughs> I found it was really hard because a lot of the time, you know, even within the humanities, like it's a really big subject. Yes. If you're including all the four strands, so history, economics, civics and geography, you know, I, I'm history trained. I'm not trained in geography or economics or civics. So even within the humanities, sometimes it's a learning curve. I was thrown into English. I had some support, but realistically not much. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to go on a PD, I was sent. So, I mean, that was great. But realistically, I did not have any mentor in how to teach English, which was really challenging in a school with students with really high literacy needs. Yeah. I found in England, if I asked for help, someone would give me some advice, but realistically it was like you can sort it out. And, you know, like you say, I think a lot of young graduates expect to get exactly what they're trained yeah. to do, Yeah, um, which is just it's just not the case. And a lot of the time, particularly in secondary school, it comes down to timetabling. Yeah. Um, my favourite at my current school, the food tech teacher had just come back from maternity leave and was given year eight humanities. And she's, she was sitting next to me going, help, help, help. Yeah. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I think if a school isn't willing or able, however you want to put it, to give that those staff a lot of support, it can be extremely challenging. Yeah. I find in my subject area a lot of people get shoved into the humanities. It's like, oh, you can figure yeah. it out. You know, it's history and stuff. You'll be fine. But it can be incredibly stressful and it, it puts a lot of pressure on the teacher, um, particularly yeah. when you've got parents who are demanding and want to know, you know, why their student isn't doing well when often you're three hours ahead of them. Um, so it's yeah. really, really hard. But um, my, my first year at my current school, I only taught humanities and it was amazing. It was just yeah. so much more stressful. It was just calmer. I felt more confident. I was like, okay, I know this. And, yeah, it really was a relief. Much better than French. That wasn't Yeah. <laughs> And what was your time like in the UK? Would you recommend it for Australian teachers to have that experience? My experience was really, really positive. I have a lot of friends who did not have that same experience though. So okay. as I mentioned earlier, like I, I taught in an all-girls grammar, uh, grammar school. It was in Kent where they still use the 11 plus system, which is where you do an exam in grade six and it determines whether you go to a comprehensive school or a grammar school, which is theoretically a higher level of education and you would go on to a level which you know is roughly the equivalent of VCE that I my girls were wonderful they were fantastic to work with really really motivated really dedicated to what they were doing I worked with some really great people at that school so my experience was great what I yeah. found challenging was the Ofsted inspection system because it is really really harsh it has very high expectations on their staff. And as someone from outside the British system, that was stressful for me. I know a lot of other people who've had really unpleasant experiences. So they've been put in really challenging situations with very little support. 
But again, having said that, I know people who are really thriving. So it's a it's a real variety, yeah. I feel. What was the thing you said you found really challenging? The like where they come and have a look like look in your classes. Is that what happens? Yes. So Ofsted effectively are responsible for maintaining school standards and okay. checking that schools are meeting certain standards. Schools will then get a ranking. There's four rankings that the schools could get. And if you didn't meet that ranking, you sort of got given a list of things that you had to fix. Okay. My school was very, very concerned about Ofsted to the point where they put me in a back building and took any other classes away from it so that they no one knew I was there what? effectively. They, in, in case I didn't sort of do the right thing, being from Australia and having only been there six months, they, they basically hid me so that I wouldn't be wow. discovered. Um, right. But, yes, it's a, it's a very, very thorough process that schools take very, very seriously. Um, this was quite a few years ago. It, it may have changed, but I, it, was, it was full on. It was all systems go. And I think schools only got a couple of days' notice. It was like oh, off-stage wow. coming yeah, right. so it was sort of action stations. It was yeah, wow. really strange. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Um, yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about you being published, Glenn, in a Pearson Education book. Can you please tell me the process and how that all happened? So I actually presented that task that I was talking about before yeah. at Conview, the Commerce Teachers Association conference. And a few days later I got an email from publishing company i can't remember exactly whether it was this particular book that it initially started with or whether i did something else for them first but i ended up they asked me to create support materials for a textbook so it was basically writing the answers to a lot of the questions that had been already made but then we found that a lot of the, the questions needed a bit of bit of tinkering as well um yeah. and and in the yeah. end, I, I realised what I was taking on was huge. So I asked if Jess could get involved, Okay. which was really good. So actually, it was the first time in a long time we actually worked together on something. And it was really fun. That's cool. Just starting to, to think about things differently and, you know, looking at a broad range of different areas of curriculum because I was business economics really is my main area, but through that kind of got further into civics as well which I think a lot of people think is a, a boring topic but I actually really like teaching um, and then Jess kind of took on the geography history stuff and then we started to cross-pollinate different <laughs> different chapters and it was, it was just really, yeah, cool. yeah, it was, it was a really fun experience. Do you find it's really challenging to create a good question that allows the answer you actually want to be generated? Yeah. I, th I definitely think so. I, I, I sat there with one of the chapters, I think it was Year 8 Economics, and I sat there for yeah. 25 minutes trying to fix this question because I was looking at the question and was just going, no, no, yeah. this doesn't work at all. And we'd, we'd sort of got in touch with the company and said, look, we, we think some of this needs to be fixed. And they said, yeah, cool, do what you need to do. Okay. And I was just agonising over the wording. I was getting really stressed. Yeah, it's stressful. I finally got there. Can I remember the question now? No. But, um, you know, I think something that Glenn and I have really started to focus on is like we don't want you to just dish us back the answer. Yeah. And a lot of texts, you know, it might have one question at the end of a, like a, a double-page spread or something, but so many of them don't encourage critical thinking. They've got really basic answers that you can find in paragraph one, two, three. Yes. Something we both really took from this project and sort of started applying to ourselves was crafting questions that looked for a little bit more you know that there's a place for knowledge and comprehension absolutely yeah. but I think it's, it's something I've realized this year especially our students are capable of much much more than that and they, they really can go further yeah. I think yeah I used to find in biology especially we would write a sack and this took years to realize that we would have an idea of marking what we thought it would be and often we'd mark separately and then come back together and have a discussion about what we found. But the best way to do it was that you'd put the sack out there, you'd then come back and you'd look at the answers together and say, well, actually, yeah, they could answer it that way because the way we've worded that question is open to that answer. And I think that's really it takes yeah. time to get there because you think, oh, no, but I've asked it this way, this is what I want, they haven't given me that. 
But if you have, yeah. if you really reflect on the question, the way that it's been worded, is that answer technically wrong, even though you didn't mm. want it? You have to reward those answers. And I think that that's really important in teaching. That was my experience marking psychology exams this week. Exact same thing where mm. we had our answer sheet. And when I looked at it, I went, but this is actually still correct. Yeah. And then sort of had a really quick over teams brief with the team and went, no, okay, mm. we'll accept that. Because yes. when I looked at the way the question was phrased, it was exactly what you said. You know, that answer was definitely applicable. Did you have an accounting example, Glenn? No, I mean, even with accounting, the theory is fairly obvious most of the time. But there's still plenty of grey areas yeah. where you could say, oh, you know, that's the answer I was expecting, but what you've argued is, is actually very logical and makes sense, so it's it's correct. But then you always have the worry that the examiners yeah. might look at it differently with Year 12. But it makes me think there's a question in the chemistry exam maybe three or four years ago about landing on Mars, and it was just basically something on the lines of you're going to land on Mars. It was basically, you know, how are you going to survive? based on your knowledge of chemistry from year 12. And I was like, that is such a good question. Yeah. And you know, none of the kids would have ever considered that as a as a question, but the ones who were used to thinking for themselves and applying their knowledge to a new context could answer it. And that has that question has inspired a lot of the work that I've done in the last few years, trying to come up with things like that where you're shifting knowledge to a new context and applying what you've been learning. Yeah. yeah. We were talking too about the idea of an ungoogleable question. So how do you generate those? So I'm, I'm thinking about an assignment that I wrote this year. Um, I inherited a subject and I didn't like very much of it, so <laughs> okay. I just rewrote it all <laughs> in a week and a half. It's funny how you do that. <laughs> yeah, it was stupid. Yeah. But anyway, yep. I did it. And this task is, is looking at, um, at what makes a good country. And the way that I approached it was to look at, at data and use um, a heap of geographical and economic and social data, but not to give the kids that data to go, well, what do you think makes a good country? And then they then had to choose which pieces of data they thought were the most important. And then they had to assess each three countries against that data and rank them. But then they had to look at, they had to make a timeline of decisions or policies that the government had implemented that they felt explained how that country had developed and then compare two of the three countries against each other and come up with an answer of which country was mm. better. And I, I look at that and I think you can't do yeah. that. Well, you first have to have your own opinion about what's important and then you have to come up with a way of, of measuring and judging and ranking and then analysing that, you know, I guess summarise that information and compare and contrast it to another country. And like that task, the kids all look at it initially and just I think their heads explode. Yeah, my head's exploding a little bit hearing about it. <laughs> yeah. But once, once they get into it, this has been, I mean, I'm now at a school which is very academic and I'm dealing with the smartest kids I've ever taught, probably the exception of Dean. <laughs> um, and they all, like a class of 25 kids, 23 of them will be able to do it really by themselves in the end. Yeah. With very little input because of the way we kind of lead up to it. And then once they start thinking about it, none of the actual processes within that task are insurmountable. And by doing the task, you're, you're learning as you go and you re, reform your opinions and kind of test ideas. And I, like, I think the impact of that task is immense mm. on the kids in the end. Yeah. Because okay. it goes back to questions about, you know, is freedom more important? Is, you know, is health more important? Environment, the economy? You know, they're all big questions which we should be thinking about when we vote. Yes. Because that's ultimately the point of it for me is, is making kids think about how they approach democracy. And a lot of, you know, they're really, really smart kids, but they haven't thought about these questions yet. And it makes them, I guess, reevaluate what is important. 
This year is the first year I've ever heard kids speak the way they have about politics because of the American election. Mm. I had kids. I thought they were playing games. They were checking the polls in year seven. Yeah, that's what happened in my class. They were so obsessed and they knew about the candidates. They knew about what was going on. They knew about their policies. Mm. I've never seen that before. So clearly this is, I don't know whether it's because we've all been stuck to our computer screens and social media and we're seeing more and so that's why they're more interested or or what, but clearly the kids are becoming much more invested in policy and their future and all of that than they ever have been, I think. I think there's curriculum that are actually supporting that Mm. more. When I think of, particularly in the humanities, looking at, where we started, you know, when I was, you know, 14 years yeah. ago starting yeah. teaching. And look at the way the curriculum is structured now, there's far more scope to do that. And I think one of the things that a lot of schools are doing well, and, you know, I think when Glenn talks about an ungoogleable question, I think a lot of teachers are forming a question based on the skills yeah. that are required to answer it. And and that's like Glenn's project there. That's exactly what's happening. We're not looking for knowledge as such. A lot, so many more teachers are looking to for students to apply a skill. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the answer is not Googleable because the skill is for you to analyse and evaluate and apply your knowledge. And I think, you know, a lot of our curriculum now, there is so much more scope to engage students in the democratic process, in wider politics and civics, other than this is the court hierarchy, yes. this is the structure of government kind of thing, which is what we all used to do. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, if you've got, if you've got teachers with proper time to do civics or electives like Glenn's, which is international studies, where you have the opportunity. I think we've got such a great opportunity to engage our kids in what's happening in the world around them. You guys have a Teachers Pay Teachers page. What kind of resources do you put up on that? Predominantly humanities-based. So we've got history, geography. Actually, a lot of them are geography and then we sort of got politics and civics and economics. We, When we started, so this was basically my maternity leave, I need to use my brain project. Yeah, um, and then I podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you need it. And then I yeah. basically told Glenn he was my business partner. We noticed there was a really, you know, the, the website's predominantly American, well, was. Um, we noticed there was a big gap in Australian resources that were tailored to Australia, um, particularly in geography. So all our early research. In high school, there doesn't seem to be as much in high school in Australia. No, no, it's grown. Like since since we've started, it's definitely growing. There's a lot more sellers making Australian resources. And I think a lot of teachers just don't know it it exists. For us, our original sales data was sort of 60% American, 40% Australian. It's now 70% Australian, 80% Australian, 20% American. So there's a lot more Australian people teachers you know getting on the site but yeah that that's our main sort of area at the moment yeah and what's your like name to get onto your teachers pay teachers uh we're teaching with fish ed so okay i'll make sure i put that in the show notes as well if anyone's interested thank you come and visit (laughs) (laughs) so you guys have two young girls how has that shifted the way you look at teaching and, and the kind of educational experiences you want to provide and you want for your girls it's changed me a lot. Mm. I, my current principal, I, it was probably about five years ago, we had a staff meeting and he said, think about how you're teaching. Would you want your own children to be taught that way? And if you don't, then change what you're doing. There was more context to that. He wasn't sort of just opening yeah. that. But um, yeah. at the time I was sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, cool, whatever. And then since having girl, like my, our girls, I went, okay, yes, I see like a hundred percent. I think for me, I have become really passionate about engaging our stu- my students with the world around us because I've realised just how important it is that students understand that your world is interconnected. You're not isolated. Your actions have an impact, whether you realise it or not. And I think looking at our girls and wanting them to be global citizens effectively and be aware of the world around them and seeing how interested they are in the world around them has really inspired me to go, yes, we need to focus on this in our classroom. This should be the priority, not yeah. ticking the boxes. That's that's sort of my big thing. What about you, Glenn? Yeah. You're at a girls' school now? <laughs> yeah, I am. I actually think you've actually made me think of something else which I think is relevant. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Two years ago I had a male student in my class 
who, whenever you talked about women's issues, you know, gender pay disparity, women's rights, whatever, his argument was, where's the discrimination? You know, it's equal. There's no problem. Yeah. Women and men are paid the same. Female teacher, male teacher paid the same. I had these huge arguments with him about this, but not in a you're an idiot way. We had very respectful arguments and I would, you know, show him different pieces of information and we'd discuss and argue or whatever. And very rarely he would acknowledge that he probably was wrong. And occasionally I would give him a little bit just to keep him in the game. Um, But it really made me aware of the prevailing attitudes of a typical male high school student towards women and probably also there was a so kind of a respectful relationships type thing that was run at the school and the presenter said oh you know put up your hand if you think feminism's gone too far and 90 percent of the boys in the room went yep yeah and i was just like what planet are you living on Mm. that you think feminism's gone too far there's so much discrimination and unequal opportunity for women and then having two daughters it's made me even more passionate about arguing with people who put that opinion out and now now that I teach in a girls school with incredibly articulate and very very strong willed intelligent young women it's made me think even more how important it is that we create more women like this So when I reflect on that with my own children and the school that I work at, I look at these girls and I'm like, well, I want my girls to grow up to be like you. Yeah. What can I do to facilitate that? And I suppose I'm not really talking about my classroom in a sense, but it's, it's, it's a bigger thing. How do we change society to recognize this issue that so many, I think men are happy to ignore? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. I was actually having a conversation with my husband the other day and he always talks about the left and the right and I never speak in those kind of terms, but he was talking about the idea that if you're more on the right, you're much more about the individual, whereas if you're more on the left, you're more about the community. And as I said, I'm not super political. I don't speak in those Mm -hmm. terms, but I see it also connected, right? To me, I take responsibility for myself and in the hope that by taking responsibility for myself and doing what I see to be important and necessary in the world, that hopefully just by taking those few steps that I'll make a difference eventually in the community and everybody does. That's kind of how I see it. And I think even from your perspective, Glenn, I mean, as a male showing your girls how that can be treated by males, I mean, that to me is a huge Mm. thing to be able to do. And as a male teacher showing, showing a female how they can be respected by males and how they shouldn't feel less than or intimidated or any of those things. I mean, those things I think are really important. That's that's what I really love about the school that I'm at now is, you know, these these young women are going to go out and they're not going to tolerate this rubbish and I hope that they can change things. And it's, yeah. it's really empowering actually as a teacher to see, you know, it's not the impact of me because I've only been teaching them for two months, but just to see the impact of that environment mm. upon them and what, I think they will go out and do. It's it's a really cool place to work. And yeah. you know, partly That's awesome. living moving to this area, a big part of that was because I want my daughters to go to this school. And, you know, obviously they're five okay. three. And I'm talking about high school. So Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Plenty as always. <laughs> plan. You're including a plan. I'm very logical. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> I'd love to ask you this is my last question. What are some of the greatest lessons you've ever learned? It doesn't have to be school-related. It can be if you like, but some of the greatest lessons. I think that it's okay to fail because mm-hmm. it's going to happen. I think that, that's that been a big thing for me in the last few years, you know, having kids trying to maintain, you know, a relatively normal life and like Glenn and I take quite a lot on in our lives um, between, yeah. you know, our, our work, um, teachers pay teachers, another business and rowing, you know, realising that you're going to fail sometimes. It's Things aren't going to go to plan, but that that doesn't mean you're a failure, I think, basically. Yeah. And yeah. picking yourself up and starting again. I think for me, 
that has been one of the biggest life lessons that I've learned. I think it's probably taken far too long <laughs> to get there, yeah. but that yeah. that I think that really is my big one. And just yeah. moving on from moving on from it, accepting it, learning from it, and you know, going forward, pretty much. Yeah. What about you, Glenn? Mm, I actually think it's it's something that's come from from sport. It's probably acceptance that no matter how much you might want something to happen in your life sometimes it doesn't happen and you you know you just have to accept that and I, like i think with rowing you know i always had a dream that i was pursuing in that sport and my body probably stopped me even finding out whether i was quite good enough and yeah. it's taken me a decade to accept that my dream isn't going to happen and that that's really? okay You've been holding yeah. on to that for 10 years that one day you would be. So can can I give context to that rowing? So how, what was the dream? What did you actually want to achieve that you haven't? Well, originally I wanted to go to the Olympics and um, I came third at nationals in, in a lightweight quad and I assumed that I was on this pathway and then I missed out on a crew the next year that went and came second in that event mm. and then I got injured and then for probably eight years I struggled through that process of trying to get my body to work properly again yeah. and row. And it's mentally really was very difficult to accept for a very long time that I wasn't going to even have another chance to have a go. Yeah. And it's a hard thing to give up on, on a dream that you have and, and move on. And that's probably something that's only really happened in the last, I don't know, what do you think, Jess, two years? Six months, maybe. <laughs> I'd say yeah, last six months. Six months. Yeah, it's probably six months. Sorry, I think really? yeah. there was a time where you declared that you'd moved on, but you you had not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I still have have goals in the sport that I want to achieve, but obviously, you know, I'm not going to go to the Olympics, and I'm not going to be a national champion, most likely, <laughs> like that one did. <laughs> But I can still get enjoyment from what I'm doing and I can share my passion for that sport and the many positive lessons that it's taught me, you know, with my new job, obviously, which is running a rowing program at a school and teaching. Yeah. So it's, you know, taking taking enjoyment from something even though it might not have given you exactly what you wanted. It's very <laughs> interesting. I actually had a conversation with actually an ex-student the other day who was an amazing runner and went to yeah. – I think went to the Commonwealth Games with it but got injured at the Commonwealth Games and has been a similar sort of thing, has been really weighing up whether or not because he's doing really well in in his job and all of that kind of stuff but he was always rewarded for his running and I think that that's where he saw himself and he put so much self-worth in that. And we were having this conversation and I said, yeah, but hasn't running already given you everything? Because at the time before you were running and were, were seen as being a good runner, you were lost. And so it created a sense mm. of belonging. It gave you a sense of self-worth and it brought you into a place where you could become who you needed to be. But now you have something else. Now you have this job and you're doing really well. And hasn't the running almost served its purpose? Hasn't it given you everything you needed? Mm. I think it's a whole identity though. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, it was for him too. I, like I didn't see it, and I can see Jess is kind of like, mm, you know, like because I, I'm, I'd have never identified myself that way. I don't look at it like that, but I can see mm. it's the same thing. It's exactly what he was saying. What you're saying to me now. But I think it does. It, I mean, yeah, just your whole social mm. group as well. I mean, for I mean, even myself, mm. I started drawing eight years ago. Like I performed yeah. fairly well at master's level um, and sometimes at grade level. But it does become all-consuming sometimes. It does become a part of you. Like we've got yeah. friends who've participated at Commonwealth Games and other sports yeah. and have found it, it's incredibly hard to move on from that when it becomes such an important part of your life. And I think people yeah. can really I think people can really love their work, but it, there's something I, I don't know exactly how to explain it. Like I, I know being pregnant and not being able to row, I hated it. You know, I sat in yeah. hospital with our second daughter being two days old and started writing out a training program. You know, and at that wow. point, I was a, yeah, I was a C-grade rower, like nothing to speak of whatsoever, yeah. but I desperately wanted to go back to it because that was my thing. 
I think sports yeah. is incredibly powerful in that. You yeah. Know, it's the same for Glenn, you know. It's been such a challenge for Glenn to realise that the body's just not going to work and it's been really, really hard. You've done really, really well yeah. through it as well as you have. Yeah, so I don't mean to, to downplay it at all, but it's just no. really interesting that I'm literally having these same conversations mm. within a week of each other. I'm like, whoa, it is. And I think obviously someone else needs to hear that. If, you, if I've heard that twice in last week, you know, clearly there are so many other people that feel the same yeah. way. So many people, so many of my friends, realistically, like yeah. you know, the guy I was talking to tonight who's doing some coaching with me at, at my school, he made it further. Obviously, I rode with him in that crew and then he represented Australia probably about four or five years ago. And he, before that, had never been injured. Everything had been smooth sailing. He was on his way to the Olympics. Well, that was the plan, was, was Tokyo, I think, originally. Um, and then just he and his brother, who were both in the same double, both got injured or had issues with their bodies. And within a year, they'd been from representing Australia to, you know, one of them struggled to get out of bed. Yeah. Not mentally. Like his, his body just basically shut down on him. And the other one had huge issues as well. And their whole identity was was rowing. And then it's like, well, what do you do now? So how do you get to that acceptance then? Like you found it within the last, we'll say, six months to two years. How did you get there? I think it's this job doing running a rowing program and, and being passionate about other people's success. Yeah. And I, I went into the job because I love rowing, but... I've realised that it's now like I'm super passionate about the rowing, but it's actually kids that I'm more passionate about. Yeah, that's awesome. Which is nice. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving me your time tonight. I really appreciate it. I'll put all your teacher pay teacher stuff in the show notes as well. It's been a pleasure chatting to you both. Thanks. Yeah, it's good fun. Thank you so much for having us. Oh,